Christmas services have become a tradition in many churches in order to acknowledge the reality that not all of us are able to experience much joy or peace this time of year. We may have suffered loss or pain. We may have trouble getting into that holiday spirit. And this can be especially true this time of year. These services are sometimes called the service of the longest night, and they're traditionally held on the night of the winter solstice, the longest night of the year, and this happens to be the night of the winter solstice. And just as we have faith that from here on out, the days will grow longer and more light will appear in the world, so too we have faith that our dark night of the soul will lessen its grip, and we will be able to feel joy again. Please join me in this opening prayer. God of abundant mercy, you have given us grace to pray with one heart and one voice, even though our hearts are broken and our voices tremble with grief and sorrow. Comfort, comfort, Lord, your holy people. Comfort those of us who sit in darkness mourning beneath our sorrow's load. Speak to us of the peace that, that, of our weary and wounded souls. We ask all this, trusting in the promise you have made to hear the prayers of two or three who have gathered in the name of your holy Christ child. Amen. This litany is based on the 126th Psalm, and the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 24. When the Lord restores the fortunes of God's people, we will be like those who dream. We believe, help our unbelief. Then our mouths will be filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. It will be said among the people, the Lord has done great things for them. We believe, help our unbelief. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams running through the desert. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. We believe, help our unbelief. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. We believe, help our unbelief. Tonight's scripture will be from Jeremiah 8. The verse 18 through 19b and verses 22 and 20 through 22. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark, the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? The word of the Lord for the people of God. You know, I've been the recipients of a lot of blessings in my life. 
I have good health, I got a nice car, I got reliable, a nice house, a reliable car, clothes to wear. I can tell you I get plenty of food. <laughs> I also have the love and support of many good friends, and I have a wonderful family. And my parents were able to supply my brothers and sisters and I not only the basics, but a lot of extras as well. And one of those extras that was always just particularly meaningful to my siblings and I has been the gift of travel. Every summer between the years of 1997 and 2006, our family would travel to somewhere in the world, usually somewhere in North America or Europe. Uh, one year, we even went to Africa. And this group would consist of my parents, us four kids, our spouses, our, uh, our, our, all the grandchildren, and sometimes even my dad's brother and his wife. So the group would consist of about 15 to 18 people. And one year, Dad wanted to take us all to the Holy Land. So, of course, the Church of the Nativity in, in Bethlehem was on the itinerary. And as the name suggests, the church is built on the traditional site of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, when you visit the Holy Land, you'll hear this a lot. This is the traditional site of such and such event, which really means we're not sure where this happened, but this is the place where people have been coming for centuries. But this lack of cer certainty, is, it's not, not as disconcerting as you might expect it to be. Because for me, the meaningful part was being there and feeling this, this connection to all those that had come before me. The air is almost palpable with the weight of centuries of prayer. Something like, it's like electricity. And it runs through every candle and and through every altar, and it brings a whole new meaning to this concept of the communion of the saints. Now, whether a person has been to Bethlehem or not, each of us carries in our mind a mental picture of what that night must have looked like. And it resembles every nativity we've ever seen. There's the baby Jesus looking calm and still, and Mary kneels piously with hands folded in adoration. Joseph looks on reverently. And the shepherds and the wise men are symmetrically arranged. And the animal's attention is riveted on the Christ child, with no concern that he's actually occupying their feed trough. Now, I've never lived on a farm, but I have my doubts that a working stable would resemble anything like our idealized versions of that nativity. Yeah. <laughs> in a real stable, animals will probably be indifferent to you unless you interfere with their food conception. Then they might get aggressive. And also, fam animals leave droppings. <laughs> there is no guarantee that that hay was clean, especially considering that there were so many people and their animals they're in Bethlehem for the census. And then add in the realities of childbirth. The hay would have been further compromised by the loss of blood and expelled tissue. So instead of kneeling piously, Mary would have been laying back exhausted from her ordeal. And remember that in a culture of arranged marriages, there's a very good chance that even though Mary and Joseph were engaged to each other, they might have been virtual strangers 
to each other. A real stable would have looked nothing like that perfect scene that we carry on in our minds and we see in all the seasonal nativity sets. Instead, this is what I imagine. So picture this. After an exhausting delivery, Mary is lying down trying to catch some sleep while Joseph looks after the baby. And then one of the cows gets hungry and tries to eat the hay underneath the baby Jesus. And attempting to push the cow away, Joseph trips over a feed bucket, sends it airborne, and it crashes against the far wall. Joseph loses his balance. He falls on top of Mary, accidentally pushing her hair in some of that dirty hay. And so startled, Mary wakes up and lets out a small scream. And then the baby starts crying. And so, so much for the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Joseph gets up and he tries, he tries to help Mary to her feet. And just for a moment, she balances on her knees and looks over at the baby who's just started to calm himself down. And as she gazes at him without thinking, her hands come up to her heart. And Joseph follows her gaze and they both behold that little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. And for one brief, shining moment, Life is perfect, and the Holy Family takes on the appearance of every nativity that we have ever imagined throughout the centuries. And this is the one moment we memorialize. Not Mary exhausted from childbirth, not Joseph unsure of himself, not animals braying, not the blood. The perfect image of that one brief shining moment when that holy family takes on that appearance of every nativity scene we've ever imagined, that's the image that we go to time and again. And likewise, we can idealize our past, envisioning scenes that existed maybe only for one moment. And we grow dissatisfied and we're disappointed with our lives when they don't live up to either our memories or our expectations. Our family's last trip was to London, or excuse me, our first trip was to London, and on the last night, we got to experience one of those moments of near-perfect family life, the kind of moment that stays with you for years. The entire family of 15 was walking down the street to the restaurant where we had reservations, and everyone was relaxed. No one was cross. And my nephew had stopped fighting with his mother, my sister, just long enough to actually laugh at her jokes and take her arm as they crossed the street. And my dad and his grandson, Jeremy, the two shyest members of the family, were walking down the street with their arms around each other's shoulder. And at the restaurant, I'm not sure how this happened, but I got relegated to the kids' table with my youngest niece and nephews, but I could not have had more fun. And at the end of dinner, my dad, who was naturally slim, could be the poster boy for willpower and self-control, ordered to everyone's surprise the largest dessert on the menu, and he ate every bite. The near-perfect ending to a perfect day. Now contrast that night with the same one nine years later in Vienna, Austria, when my mother suffered a massive stroke that left her severely disabled. And that put an end 
to our family trips. And I think that night it also put an end to ever again experiencing that perfect family moment. Now this is not to say that we don't still enjoy each other's company or that we never experience joy or laughter. It's just now the laughter has this melancholy undertone because we can never forget what it is that we've lost. You know, almost all families, when they sit down to Christmas dinner, there's an empty place. If there's an empty place, at, if not at the table, then at least in our hearts. And if we're lucky, the separation is just the temporary result of, of job responsibilities or airline schedules. If we're not so fortunate, it could be evidence of long-term estrangement between family members. But then there are their separations that are due to death, and these are especially hard. For some of us, those losses are still fresh and raw, and we wonder if we'll ever be able to enjoy the holidays again. And for others, the losses happened years, sometimes decades ago. But every once in a while, especially this time of year, the veneer cracks and the old grief rises unbidden and leaves you gasping and wondering how a pain and a loss so long ago could still have such power to break your heart. As one writer put it, grief is a shapeshifter that shows up in a thousand different ways. I've said this before in, in my sermons, but it bears repeating. One of the things that has really surprised me the most as I've grown older, something that I never anticipated when I was a young adult, is how much that the longer you live, the more you live your life in a state of grief. Grief just becomes a part of who you are. It becomes a part of your life. It's always there, just below the surface. And again, this doesn't mean that we can't be happy. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy life or enjoy the holidays. It just means that there's now a tint of blueness that forever permeates our lives. I recently read with interest that not only is today the day of the winter solstice, the longest night of the year, but today, December 21st, is also the feast day of St. Thomas the Apostle. Now, as you recall, the Apostle Thomas is also known as Doubting Thomas because he was away when the resurrected Christ appeared to all the other disciples. And when they told them that they had talked to the Lord, Thomas didn't believe them. It was not until a week later when Thomas, for himself, could talk to Jesus that he believed that Christ had been raised from the dead. And the thing is, sometimes we're like Thomas. The resurrection has happened. Others have testified to it. We want to believe it. But for now, at least for us, it's not a reality in our lives. We are still living in the grief of Good Friday. And we wonder if resurrection or rebirth can ever happen for us. Grief and loss can leave us doubting God's presence God's goodness, or even God's existence. And this doubt can leave us feeling guilty for not having true faith. Because after all, 
true Christians never have doubt. We are always faithful. And Thomas is often criticized for his doubt. But the thing is, Thomas is my favorite apostle. In fact, Thomas is my hero. What I so admire about Thomas is that he never gave up. He didn't just pack it in and go back to Galilee. He, he came back until his doubts and his questions were answered. Despite his doubt, he was faithful. Because the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is indifferent. And Thomas was never indifferent. So when we still choose to believe despite our pain and grief and despite our doubt and all of our questioning, I think we're actually exhibiting the highest faith and we are being the most faithful. And it reminds me of another passage from the prophet Jeremiah. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I think perhaps what we really need is to fully realize that life has never been and can never be picture perfect, at least not for very long. And it's important that we admit this and leave just a little bit of room in the ends of our hearts to acknowledge and accommodate these losses and these imperfections and these doubts in our lives. And it's okay to cry, even if it's Christmas. In fact, I think it's essential that we let ourselves mourn. Losses can be like a birth process. And birth processes are long and bloody and painful, even dangerous. I suspect that even little Lord Jesus cried while he was being born. So remember that often what we are grieving is not just the loss of our loved one. We also grieve the loss of what we thought our lives were going to be like, how we thought that our lives would turn out. Perhaps we'll get further down that road to Christian perfection if we let go of the need to be perfect. And when the losses and the imperfections and the doubts of this life have pushed you to the margins of your world, when you're in a strange place, separated from your family and your home, when society can't seem to find any room in the inn for you, and the only place you have to rebirth your life is a stable full of manure, then remember, that is exactly where we find the Christ child. Amen. And so now receive this benediction. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. Look to the Christmas star and the promise that it brings. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go now in peace.